Julie at Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello and welcome to episode 229 of Dogcast Radio, which is all about emotions. Do check out our website, dogcastradio.com, where you'll find all our podcasts and much more. Later on, we'll be talking to Tony Shelbourne about dogs who are scared of the vet. Another thing you can do is get something that smells of the vets. You can put that in an airtight container. And then every time you feed them the dinner, you can just open it, let them sniff and feed them the dinner. Or open it, put it on the floor as they sniff, drop treats around it. So you start to build up that positive association of the vets without having to be at the vets. And we have the Dogcast Radio News. As breeders struggle to meet the demand for dogs... This month, dog owners in the UK have been targeted numerous times by criminals to the extent that people are now being warned not to walk their dogs alone in isolated locations. But before all that, we have a fascinating interview with Dr Geoffrey Masson about his book, Lost Companions, Reflections on the Death of Pets. This is a wide-ranging conversation, encompassing and celebrating many aspects of animals and dog ownership. I thoroughly enjoy this interview. I hope you do too. I'm talking to Geoffrey Masson this morning. Morning, Jeff. Good morning, Julie. Well, I should say good good evening to you because it's six o'clock That's in the right. evening. It's my evening. Yeah, your morning. <laughs> yes. Lucky you. It's still early here for me. And we're going to talk about your book, Lost Companions, Reflections on the Deaths of Pets. Uh, I'm sorry, on the death of pets. And it's such a huge subject. Um, and I, I really enjoyed, um, I haven't read the whole book, but what I read of it, I've really enjoyed. Um, and one thing that, that struck me was you, you several times, you sort of say that animals, their emotions may even be superior to ours. That's a really interesting approach. Yeah, that's kind of my new hallmark. I, I believe that that's going to become increasingly important in the years to come. And I don't see why, I mean, whenever I say it, people are shocked or angry or disbelieving, but I don't think they should be. After all, we don't have a problem saying that, you know, birds can fly, we can't. Worms can dig in the earth and we can't. And, you know, a cheetah can run faster than any human. I mean, we there's so many things we acknowledge that animals can do that we can't. Why is it so upsetting to think maybe they have certain emotions that are more powerful than our own? And, you know, when people ask me for examples, I mean, that's something I've studied. It's just something that struck me. So, for example, I think it's possible that elephants mourn more deeply than humans do. It's possible that that whales do as well. I think that um, something that closer to home that we can all identify with, I don't think any human can be as content as a cat can be. When a yes. cat's content, they're really content. <laughs> and, then, and then there's love. And I do believe that it's possible. Now, this is, just, this is just really a hypothesis of mine that no human can love another human as much as a dog can love us. And if that's true, that's a major mystery yes. <laughs> to try to understand and and unfold because here we are there is nothing like that in nature as far as we know there's no animal in the wild that loves a member of another species yes <laughs> more than it loves itself for example yeah yeah i mean and there are and, amazing, and when, i've never seen a single example of it 
No, no. And when you think about humans, it's pretty amazing that they can love us that much, us, us flawed beings, that they can love us that much. (laughs) They don't recognize those flaws. No. I mean, we don't know that. Maybe they do and they say, oh, the hell with it. Let's forgive them. (laughs) Yes, yeah. But in many ways... They don't hold a grudge. No, no, they don't. I was going to say, in many ways, emotionally, they're superior to us because they don't, you, you know, even when you... Not that you should, but even if you tell a dog off, they don't sort of go, right, I'm not talking to you then because... That's you know, right, that's it. You yeah. disappoint me, I want nothing for... A cat might do that. <laughs> yes. That's might, but a dog won't. No. Ever. No. no. no and you can't... They don't have this concept of, of you hurt... Well, they know when you hurt them. So, I mean, I'm sure everybody's experiences. You step on your dog's toe by mistake on their yes. foot and they yelp. They're in pain. Yeah. And then the first thing they do, they look at you. And I finally figured out why they're trying to determine whether you did it on purpose or not. Yeah. And the minute they see that you're sorry, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You know, their tail wags and it's total forgiveness. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love that in, in your book. You mentioned that um, their IQ might not be the highest, but their EQ, their emotional intelligence is, you know, just off the stratosphere, which is... Oh, that's right. And I really believe that. I believe that ever since I wrote Dogs Never Lie About Love, which is what now about 25 years ago more. And that was my hypothesis. And I haven't changed that at all. I really do believe that for certain, for certain feelings, such as friendship, even, I think there are superior. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, And love which is, yes. you know, probably the most important of all emotions on this planet. Yeah. So we have also something to learn from them. Oh, yeah. And I'm amazed, you know, there's something like 70,000 books about dogs out there. Wow. But as far as I know, no one has tackled this question of what allows them to have such completely pure love that is unadulterated, that is not in the least ambivalent and that's always present for a member of another species Yes, yes. who doesn't necessarily return it. Yeah. Or deserve it. <laughs> but evidently we don't deserve it. That, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. And what I love about them is, is one of the things I love about them is you never have to say to the dog, do you love me? Because as soon as you walk in the door, they're there wagging, going, oh, hi, you're back. I, you know, missed you. And nobody else in your life, well, usually no. nobody else in your life is at the door waiting, going, I have missed you, darling. You know, well, it, especially it, if you've it, only been gone 10 minutes. Yes. 10 minutes, the dog, oh, you're back. Thank God, I have so much to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that thing, if you were gone forever, I counted. You know, yes. it's um, so, having said that, you know, it's it's wonderful to have a dog. And I always say, loving a dog is wonderful but losing a dog is just brutal it's it's an awful awful thing to go through and luckily we are now sort of awarded the right if you like of mourning our dogs now it is recognized that we do mourn our dogs isn't it yes indeed and and that they that that mourning period however long you want it to be is legitimate Yes. And it is nobody's business but yours. So if you want to crawl under the covers for a year, that's your, you're entitled to do that. Nobody yes. today can say, oh, enough already. 
Yeah. I mean, they might make suggestions. Have you been to a shelter recently? There's so many dogs that need to be after some period of time, maybe after five, six, seven, eight months, a person may feel now I'm ready to visit a shelter. Yes. And I'm, I guarantee you, if you go to a shelter, you're not going to come out without a dog. Yes. <laughs> yeah. They are aware that every person that passes them is their chance for a life. Yeah. Or yeah. A family. Yeah. And it's interesting you say that about, you know, the, the, the time scale, you know, and, and I was thinking this the other day that you have to, I, I believe you have to do what you need to do to get you through. If that means you go out and get another dog, you go and rescue a dog uh, as soon as possible, then do that because that's what you need to do. If that means waiting, then wait. And I can remember when I lost Buddy in 2018, my black Labrador and I think it, it was only a couple of months later. And I was, and there was, there was a dog in the house. My daughter's dog was in the house. Um, you know, I had support, but I, I was really, the grief was just a, a freight train. And, um, and somebody that I didn't know very well on, on I had met them but on, on Facebook. Um, so sent me a message with a link to a rescue dog saying it's time. And I was incandescent with rage I was also crying my eyes out you know but I, you know I was just I I am still lost in grief for this dog I, I can't take it but it's a very very personal decision isn't it it is it totally and if somebody says I cannot even imagine living with another dog respect that they, yes. they have the right to do it and usually people will themselves say I think I'm beginning to think that maybe I need yes. to look into finding another dog who is desperate and needs my help. Yes. Yeah. Never think- buy one. Never buy one. <laughs> yeah. I was saved by the fact there was another dog in the house. So well, that, that helps. Yes. Yeah. I think if there hadn't been a dog at all, I would have just gone out, you know, and, and got a dog. And I can remember when I, years and years and years ago, when I used to teach, um, the caretaker of the school had a beautiful German Shepherd dog. And um, we're talking a lot about German Shepherds this morning. We were chatting before we started <laughs> mentioning German Shepherds. But, um, and he, his German Shepherd died and he was, he was in bits. And he, and he said, I can't have another one. I can't do this again. I can't go through this. And, you know, within a week, he came into the, the nursery where I worked and he said, come here. And he opened his coat like that. And he had a dog. He had a tiny, tiny puppy. And I was like, oh, Joe, you've got a, you got a puppy. And he was like, I, I just can't, I can't, I can't not have that dog. And that's what I mean. If that gets him through, it, it's yeah. no disrespect to the other dog, is it? Certainly yeah. not. Of course not. No. I mean, usually it's a chance to relive it, a chance to renew that kind of companionship that you only get from a dog because yes. the dog is happy to be with you. 24 hours a day and never says, you know, this is beginning to get a little bit boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. In, in lockdown right now, dogs are in ecstasy. Oh, they love yes. it. Yeah. This is what they want. <laughs> Cat wants you to leave, but the dog wants you to stay. <laughs> Very true. Yes. I, I, I was thinking this, that we, we, I mean, this has been said so many times that lockdown. Yes. Was, I think some dogs took a little bit of adjustment to, Oh, right. You're here all the time. But then yes, it's wonderful. But then when we finally please <laughs> come out of lockdown, um, that is going to be a bump again, isn't it? Because they do enjoy having it. be very difficult. And I'm terrified to, to think that some people may, quote, return their dog. I know. 
because, you know, right now, for example, we live in Sydney, Australia. You cannot get a dog for wow. love or money. They're just, all the shelters are completely empty. Yeah. There are no dogs available. That's true. My daughter lives in California. She said it's impossible. We've tried. We've called 20 shelters. There are no dogs. Because wow. everybody wants a companion. Yes. To be with them all the time at home. The problem, as you said, is what's going to happen when we're back to normal? Are these dogs going to adjust to being left? I mean, I don't think any dog likes to be left alone. No. And then the thought that some people will say, okay, I needed that, but you have to go to a shelter now. I mean, what a betrayal. I know. I hope there won't be many people who do that. Yes, I do. I do. Because, I mean, whatever life is like having a dog with you, yes, it can be, you know, you have to, there's an effort to be made, an investment for you to make. Um, but it's worth it, isn't it? Oh, my God. There is nothing like it. Yeah. There is no other relationship that is similar, actually. Yes. Yeah. And that That's extraordinary. I mean, we sometimes forget that we are living with an alien, <laughs> an alien creature who just adores us. Yes. Yeah. And, and I don't entirely understand why. <laughs> I mean, no, really, I don't think yes. we actually deserve it because you see this, even when people are nasty to a dog, the dog cowers and looks terrified, but does not leave. Yes. Does not run away, wants to convince you, but I love you. Yes. Love me back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's it is amazing. The purpose in life. That's what yes. they do. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's such a blessing, isn't it? And be- I, I do think because of the depth of that blessing, that's why the the losing them is so deep and complicated and horrible and, you know, and, and it really is. And yes. And I think it's important if, if somebody's listening to this and sort of going through that tsunami, that maelstrom of, of, of grief, and it's horrible and it's twisted and horrible. And I can remember when um, I had to make the decision for, for Buddy, you know, he was, it, it was, and it was clear that he, the joy of living had, had gone for him at that point. And so I made the decision. I woke up that night in a panic thinking I had the best dog in the world and I killed him and it was awful it was dreadful this is why I've got the tissues handy Jeff <laughs> I've got my tissues yeah. handy um I totally understand that it, it's I totally awful. understand and yeah. I, I mean I do have to say one thing that that I believe is true I quote a vet who wanted to remain anonymous yeah. but he said look I have been so often with a dog at the last moment and their human family cannot bear to see it, and they leave. And I beg you not to do that because the dog lifts their head up and they look around in panic, where is my person? Yes. And I think, I don't know for sure, and I don't think anybody does, but I suspect the dogs understand death Mm. and that they know this is their last moment. And they want that moment to be with you. Yes. They don't want to be alone. They want you to be there. Yeah. And that is a deep comfort to them. Yes. And so this vet, I plead with you, he said, stay there. I know how difficult it is. Yeah. And and, and like you say, it's it's a strange thing to decide for the dog. Yes. It's time to go. Now, mind you, and I think you 
will certainly agree with this. They kind of let you know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't understand I, that. I can't do this anymore. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people said before, you'll know, you'll know when it's the right time. And you think, well, right. is it now? Is it now? And I mean, for us, I, and I won't talk about it too much because I will get very upset, but you know, we were sort of saying, well, with Buddy, he had a, um, a degenerative spine condition um, and he had times when he went off his legs and we waited and my husband carried him, you know, out to the to the garden to toil and, and then back and, and carry him into the bedroom at night. And then after a few days, we, we were back on track and he was he was able to walk again. Finally, he went off his legs. We were carrying him and it was becoming worse every time. What decided us was we, we, we were talking to the vet and, and I kept saying to the vet, has a dog got better from being this bad in your experience? No. Okay. So we waited. It was on a Friday and we said, okay, we're coming on Monday. And, and I never wanted to do that. I never wanted to know the clock's ticking and we've got it. But anyway, we said, okay, Monday. On Saturday, he was clearly worse. And he said no to cheese. I offered him cheese. And he just turned away and you think, and the light had gone from his eyes. And you know, you're absolutely right. You know, it's clear, isn't it? They tell you. Now you're going to make me cry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's a horrible business losing a dog. It's horrible. It's horrible. And, you know, in a way we don't really do this with humans. Mind you, I have a chapter in there, which my editor did not want me to put in about euthanasia. Yeah. Because I'm not very keen on euthanasia when it comes to humans. I, I find that it's sometimes misused in Brussels today. They're allowing minors to choose to die for psychiatric reasons. I find mm. that an abomination. Yes. And they, I read a case where they said this 16-year-old girl is suffering from deep depression that is untreatable. Well, I don't believe that. There's no such thing. And she was allowed to be euthanized. I think oh, that's horrendous. Gosh. Yes. And, I mean, we've never do that to a dog. First of no. all, a dog will never be sad. <laughs> if you're there, they're not going to be sad. Yeah. But the only reason to do what you just described, I, I hate to even give it a name, is when the dog lets you know they can't walk, they can't eat, they can't go to the bathroom, they can't move. It's enough. Yes. They want it. I'm sure if they could speak, they would say, please let me go. Yeah. yeah. But stay with me. Oh, yes. And, yeah. And like you say, you what you want to know, you say to the vet, is there any chance that this dog will recover? In your wide experience, is there a possibility that he'll get through this? And if the answer is no, then it is cruel to make them suffer like yeah. that. How old was your dog? Fifteen and a half, fortunately. Oh he had for, yes. For a black lab. Yes, That's I know. A very long life, you know. Yes. It's usually ten to twelve is yeah. the average. Yeah. No, and he was our, so lucky. Yeah. Our Benji was yes. almost fourteen as well. Yeah. And um, it, it was harder because I couldn't be present. So what happened, he was a guide dog for the blind in uh, Auckland, New Zealand. Yeah. He did not want to work. And they knew I had written this book, <laughs> Dogs Never Lie About Love. So they called and they said, look, Jeff, um, we like your book and we think we have a fabulous dog for you. And this dog just is not meant to be a guide dog. Yeah. He just looks at the blind people and looks away like, you know, you figure this out for yourself. 
bless. <laughs> he wasn't the brightest. I don't think he understood what was happening. But he had, as they said, this dog loves everyone and every other creature. Yeah. And that turned out to be true. He loved, well, the first day we met him, he went rushing up to this miniature pony. Yeah. And I thought, uh-oh, if he's going to bark at this pony, that's not the kind of dog I want. He rushed up and he licked the pony's face. Oh, <laughs> bless. <laughs> and it turned out our, our kids had pet rats. He adored them. He would cuddle them. He would sleep with them. One day, a, a, a little boy brought a baby mouse. And he said, I better not show him to your dog. He might eat him. I said, no, I promise you, he will do nothing except gaze with wonder. Sure enough, he showed Benji this tiny little mouse. And Benji was like doing, oh, so cute, so cute. <laughs> <laughs> he oh, rabbits. So I wrote a book about him, The Dog Who Could Not Stop Loving. Oh. And this really replaced, he, he was not that intelligent. And we didn't care. No. No. You know, we, we loved him for this this compassion he had for every for people, for dogs, for cats, for birds, for every living creature. It was really remarkable. Yeah. And when I said the dog who couldn't stop loving uh, on the title, and I thought, well, this is unique. I think I was wrong. I think there are lots of dogs like that. Yeah. <laughs> we just don't know them that well. I think yeah. a lot of dogs just love everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's funny you say that because buddy I will I will say he he wasn't keen on pigeons in his garden. <laughs> he okay. would bark <laughs> pigeons in the bargain in the garden, but that was it. Everybody else and every dog. He he liked dogs. Um and that's one something I want to talk about as well, about as well because we, you touch on that in the book. But so my buddy um he liked dogs, but he liked people more. He, he well, that was true of Benji too. Yeah. Benji. yeah. He was he was friendly with other dogs, but he, he, you could see he was never in love. Yes. He loved us. Yes. And that and it, and especially our family. But he liked all people. Yes. But he was especially fond of our two small boys, and my wife and me. So yeah. what happened in the end is we took him from New Zealand to Australia. It's very hard on a dog, you know. Yes. And, and I can still remember when he got out of the crate and he saw us, he went completely wild. Oh, my God, you're here. You know, we <laughs> all were crying. And then it turned out my wife, uh, my wife's mother was very ill yeah. in Berlin. And so we decided we'd better move back to Berlin. So we went back to Berlin. And again, we took Benji with us. And this was a much longer trip. He was 36 hours wow. uh, yeah. getting from Sydney, Australia to Berlin. And when we opened the crate, again, he went completely mad. And I'm sure that during that time, he thought, I have been abandoned. Mm. I'm through. I'm finished. But there we were. And he was so happy. Yeah. Then, <laughs> as fate would have it, her mother got much better, and Australia was calling. And Lila's a pediatrician. She works with children. She had many patients in Australia. They were begging her to return. So we decided we had to return. But they would not allow us to bring Benji back. Hmm. They said he was now 13. That was too old for a dog to make those that 36-hour voyage again and that he would not survive it. 
So our older son said that I'm staying here with Benji. And he did. Yeah. But Benji got weaker and weaker. And finally, he called us and he said, please, one of you has to come and help me get through this and be with Benji in his last few weeks. So my Mm -hmm. wife went. I stayed with our younger son in Sydney. And they took him to a campground that a cousin of hers has near Munich. And he revived when he saw Lila, my wife. And he went for walks with them. But they they said they could feel that he was forcing himself to go. You know, he put one foot in front of the other. And it was like, no, no, I can do this. I can do this. But it was clear he couldn't. Yeah. And after a week of that, he just lay down. And it was like, I can't do it anymore. Mm. I can't. And they knew the time had come. Yeah. And everybody, he'd only been a few weeks in that campground. Everybody adored him. Yeah. So they held this party for him and the vet came there to the campground and yeah. he died. But, you know, my son just, he just said, dad, I, I can't, I can't handle this. Yeah. I just can't get over it. I, I spent my whole ch- childhood with him. Yes. You know, yeah. And, and it's this, I, I think it's because we don't get this kind of love from any other person or creature yes (laughs) nobody loves us in that way yeah yeah and i i don't even think it's that we love them so much as they love us and we don't who else gives us this this experience so it's a very deep experience yes yeah and i think sorry yeah no 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 you're going it is it is deep and it's on your level. So like you say about whether if you're a grown up and you're sitting on the sofa and you're in sort of in middle aged angst or if you're a child. And as you say, I mean, my daughter grew up with, with Buddy and, you know, the dog would lie on the floor with her and she'd be lying on her tummy watching the television. He'd be lying next to her. And she said, when I laughed, he'd kind of open his mouth and sort of, you know, the, the happy grin of a Labrador. It's, uh, and I'm he, so glad you're happy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But particularly as a child, you know, when you're adults, yes. your parents have sort of annoyed you, the dog still loves you. It's, it's yeah. nice. Well, our son wanted more than anything to sleep every night with Benji. And yeah. we said, sure. So, you know, that's such a comforting thing yes. for this big, you know, 80 pound animal to be lying in bed with him and yeah. he'd put his head on his chest and the two of them would sleep together every night. Yeah. And they were inseparable. So yeah. he said, I don't know how I'm going to be able to sleep alone now. Yeah. Oh, bless. And it's, it's, it is, it's a horrible price you pay. And you, you mentioned this in the book that it's a, it's a horrible for, for children. And of course it's shaped by the adults around them. And, and I think there's two, there's two things to, to sort of unpack there is we need to be honest with our children at that time when, when they lose the dog. And that's a really difficult thing. And until you've gone through it as well, you go through your own emotions, but you also have this weight of responsibility in a way for, for your child's emotions as well. It, it's, a, it's a horrible Time it, well, it, it can be difficult, especially if you're in a marriage, which some people are, unfortunately, where one partner does not share this love or this belief or this intense 
caring for another creature. Yes. And I tell women, some women tell me, you know, my I, it's been a year. My husband just makes fun of my relationship with the dog. And I say, look, I don't mean to be a troublemaker, but if I were you, I'd think about getting another husband. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep, take <laughs> so, him to I mean, the shelter. I, I, yeah, I mean, yeah, send him to a shelter. <laughs> yeah. Let him wait there. Let him wait for somebody who likes him. Yes. I mean, I can understand that somebody might not feel as deeply as you do, but you have to respect the feeling yes. of the other person. Yes. And if, if they want to sleep in bed with a dog, then you have to accept that. You can't say, I'm not allowing a dog to share my bed. Um, that that's not on. I I think, I mean, I don't know the statistic, but I can imagine a lot of marriages just come apart over something like that as they do about diet too. I I feel very strongly because I'm a vegan. Yes. My wife's a vegan and I don't think I could live with somebody who ate meat every day. I just couldn't. Yeah. And you know, I understand that they might want to, I'm not going to complain. I just can't live with it. Yeah, because I look at my dog and I think this is an animal. You know, I can yes, never yes. eat him. So why would I eat a pig? You yeah, know? yeah, isn't it so deep for me? Yeah, yeah. Go See, I, I'm vegetarian, and uh-huh. um, and now I, in my defense, I, I met my husband when I was very young. <laughs> We've been together a long okay. time, but you know, he he's a meat eater. He likes he he always says, you know, I say I'm vegetarian. And he likes it pointed out. He's normal. He likes that. Well, he, but he's wrong. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you tell him. <laughs> you tell yeah. Him. Well, but, you know, I had this exact same discussion two days ago yeah. with an English uh, on Zoom with an English person who has a podcast about dogs, and she said exactly what you said, my husband. That's why I thought of it. And I said, "Well, have you talked to him?" She said, "Are you kidding? Of course. Have you asked him to read?" And she said, he won't read anything about this issue. Wow. And I said, well, will he watch a film? No, he will not watch Cowspiracy, Forks Over Knives, What the Health, no film about animals. Yeah. And I said, well, I would consider divorce. <laughs> my business, of course. But it does strike me as strange that if you love somebody, and they are passionately committed to something, you don't at least make an attempt to understand. You might agree to disagree on this, but surely we have a right, we have an obligation to understand what is, what moves our partner to such passion. Yeah, yeah. Well, this will please you. I've always given him his space and I've never tried to sort of convert him. Yeah, we've talked about it and whatever, but I've never sort of tried to sort of um, aggressively convert him. Well, now he's, he's trying uh, vegan and vegetarian um, food. He always likes vegetarian food, but he always says, I want a great big slab of beef beside it. Well, okay. Well, we now, I don't know whether this is the, the thing that's had the effect. I think it's climate change, to be honest, but we live in a house where there's a field right at the side of the back garden and there's beautiful, beautiful cows in there. And, um, and now, cause he's always said, you can have any pet you like, but not a cow because I can't eat a pet. We had ducks. He didn't <laughs> eat duck, you know? That's yeah. it. So, so he's sensitive at least. He oh yes. It. Yeah. Oh, he's lovely. Mr. Doncaster is lovely. But, um, now, yes, now he's coming around to, and it, it's his own decision and he's trying more uh, vegan and vegetarian things so you know we're, we're and we're all all our diets are, our personal diets are changing um in response sure. i think and, yeah. yeah 
So I, I mean, think even we're getting there. The great George Monbiot in, in London has now become vegan. Yeah. But I think, again, for the reasons that you just said your husband is interested for the for climate change yes. and for the environment, yeah. and that's great. I mean, I don't care why they do it. I do it for animals. Yeah. Other people do it for their health. And uh, most people do it for the environment. That's fine. Whatever yeah. reason you have to do it. You know, it's interesting you should say that about the cows, because I remember when I was doing the research for a book called it was not very popular, called The Pig Who Sang to the Moon, which is about the emotional lives of farm animals. And I was once walking in a field and on the fence on the other side were something like, I don't know, 30 cows. And they saw me and they all came to the fence and they looked at me. And I know it was just a fantasy, but my fantasy was they're saying, why don't you help us? Mm. How can you be writing about this? And here we are, and we're going to be killed, and we're going to be milked, and our children are going to be taken away. And they gave me such a deep look as if they understood that I, I agreed with them, but I wasn't doing enough. Yeah. Now, I'm sure that was a fantasy, but it was a strange thing. They came right up to the fence, and they just stared at me. Yes. Yeah. And... I mean, I don't know how anybody who eats cows can ex- see that and not feel guilty, as your husband did. Yes. Good for him. <laughs> Guilt is healthy. I like him. Yes, I got a good one. He's a nice man. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, it's their eyes. I think they have such big, trusting eyes and eyelashes. And they just yes. you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I want, I want, I, exactly. I, I used to be, um, when... Um, Again, this is years ago when Jenny was, when my daughter was oh, two or three, one of her, her she made friends and his, his mum was a big farmer. And so we went to the farm and, um, and Jane knew I was vegetarian. Like, you know, we, we and it was, we respected each other. Um, and she said, one day she said, come with me, come with me. And she opened this door into the barn and there were calves in there. And very sadly, they had them to, to fatten up and sell off. Um, but Oh my goodness! I wanted—I just wanted to take them all home and and just love them all and let them all live and just—I just remember big eyes in the dark glinting and you just think, oh, you—it is—it's a horrible idea to eat them. But you know, yes, I—it's—I've had that experience of kind of thinking, oh my goodness, and and communing almost and going, right, I want—I want to take you home. I want to take you. And I mean, saying that, and and it made me think immediately of we went and stayed on a, a relative's farm. And when, when a dog came near, the cows put their calves in the middle and they stood around the outside and they were ready to defend. They loved their babies, you know. And, of and, course. Yes, yeah. they do. Yes. yes. They care for them. And, yes. And, and care about them, definitely. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, it is cruel. That's how I became vegan. I, what happened, Lila, as I said, is a pediatrician. So she you know, knows a lot about kids. And we were visiting a so-called ideal dairy farm, a model dairy farm at the University of California, Davis. And I was writing this book, um, The Pig Who Sang to the Moon. So I wanted to see up close what happens on a dairy farm. And this was supposed to be one of the best in the world. And the woman who was taking us around was pregnant. Yeah. And she was a graduate student, a young graduate student. And suddenly we heard this terrible sound, this moaning. And I said, what is that? And she said, oh, 
that's a calf, a newborn calf, calling the mother. Mm. I said, why? Well, they've been separated. I said, why would you separate them? Well, we want the milk of the mother, and yeah. so does the calf. And I said, but, and then a second later, there was a, an answering call. And I said, what's that? That's the mother. So the mother wants her yeah. calf. Yes. And my wife couldn't help herself. I know she looked at her, she said, look, you're about to have a baby. How would you feel yes. if somebody took your baby away and say, no, you're not going to breastfeed because we want to use your mother's yeah. milk? Yeah. And she said, you know, I'd never thought of it. I mean, my wife is very lovely and polite, so she wasn't being aggressive. She yes. just really wanted to know. I'm sure she didn't say, how would you feel? She said something like, you know, I'm sure you can understand that, yeah. you know, babies want their mother and mothers want their babies. Yes. And everyone was startled. And we said to each other on the way home, that's it. We're not yeah. going to drink milk anymore. Yeah. So that's how we went off dairy. So we became vegan. That was 17 years ago. Yeah. But it was exclusively because we saw up close what is involved. Yes. And I think if most people saw exactly what happens to how they get their eggs and how they get their milk or how they get their bacon, they wouldn't want to do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, again, you you took the words out of my brain that time. I was thinking exactly <laughs> that. But if more if more people saw it, I mean, with the with the field, I'm, I'm gesturing. It's it's over there. But um, and it took it took me a while to get to this. But we, we, in the field, there are cows and there are calves here, and and they you know to see them suckle from the mother, and it's all idyllic and it's lovely. And then I kind of stood there and I went, hang on. So if they're leaving the cows in, and they never take them into milk. So they're not dairy cats. Oh, my goodness, they're beef cows. Oh, my goodness. And then suddenly it was like, just for a couple of days, I was like, I don't want to see them now because they're, you know, they're going to be killed. But and I've, I've gone back to appreciating them being there. But yes, it's once you go through that thought process, it's it's a horrible thing. And also, and you to, to get back to the book, you mentioned this in the book, animals mourn each other, don't they? It certainly do. And um, I wonder how much dogs understand about the death of other dogs. Yeah. Because yeah. I've heard many people have written to me and say that their dog went into a kind of funk, became mm-hmm. depressed when their best friend, a dog who shared the house died. Yes. So um, and we certainly know, you know, there's the famous case of this whale who was carrying her baby around for 15 days and her mouth could not accept the fact that her calf had died. Yeah. Just could not. And by the way, last week she gave birth to a healthy new calf, and Pretty. the whole world was pleased. Oh, yes. wonderful! You know? <laughs> so they definitely mourn. And elephants understand death again, possibly more than we do, because I tell this story in, in "When Elephants Weep," the first book I wrote about animal emotions. Because uh, and it wasn't my story; it was Cynthia Moss, a great elephant researcher who kept very meticulous notes. And she said that elephants are fascinated by the bones of other elephants. They pick them up, they examine them, they touch them. And she said once um, a troop was going by, a herd of of wild elephants, and and they did their usual thing with with touching the, the bones, and one baby elephant didn't want to leave. It held the jawbone of an elephant, and it would not let it go. 
And finally, very reluctantly, when the baby saw that the others were leaving, she dropped it and left. And Cynthia Moss was curious, looked up her records. That was the jaw of her mother. Her mother had died. And this baby recognized it. And the scientific explanation that Moss gave is simple, that they're very tactile. And they use their trunk to constantly feel one another. So this baby had felt her mother's head and jaw and recognized her. But she didn't want to leave her. So she was mourning. Yes. When we realize, I mean, we mourn too, of course, and and very profoundly often. Yes. We don't recognize one another from a skeleton. No. No, so wow, that's, that's quite extraordinary. Yes, that, amazing, amazing. And um, I mean, they, we, we, I mean, I've read the advice that um, we, if you have more than one dog, when one of them dies, take the body home for the other dog to sniff yes. to, yes. to have some understanding. Yeah, yeah, so that it doesn't seem what happened. Yeah, where is what, where has she gone? Yeah, yeah. So I think that that does suggest to me. That, that dogs do understand death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, another thing, and it's, it, we do this, is why do we compare the, the, the grief we feel for a dog, for an animal, with that of a human? You know, and we constantly sort of, you know, when children sort of have my, my first best friend and my second best friend and my third, it's kind of that kind of thing, isn't it? You know, the, this layer, ordering of grief. Why do we do that? Hierarchy of grief. I told yes. you I didn't like hierarchy. <laughs> Why do we do that? Yes. Well, I I think to some extent we're ashamed sometimes, some people are, of these feelings we have. Yes. The profound love for a a completely different species and then the deep mourning that overtakes us when that species leaves our life. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that some people are ashamed of that and... And some people believe that they have to tell you how long you can mourn and when you should not mourn. And the worst example of this, I, it's in the book, but um, most people skip over it because it's so astonishing. The man who invented um, in the United States lobotomies. Yeah. Terrible man, in my opinion, a horrible man. He used to go around and he had a golden ice pick and he would stick it behind people's eyes and, Go like that and say, you're done. Now you won't feel sad anymore. And I happened to meet his son at the University of of California at Berkeley. He was a well-known physiologist there. And he was doing lobotomies on cats and dogs. Hmm. And I did not like this. And I said to him, I was very upfront. I said, look, I find this appalling. Could we have a, a, a lunch together and try and discuss this? And he said, okay, so we did. It did not end well because I assumed he would be ashamed of what his father did. And not in the least. He said, oh, no, when I was a teenager, I would come with him and I sometimes would hold this uh, golden ice pick. And I said, "But you know, I couldn't understand this. I wanted to know why he would do this to cats and rabbits, how he could bring himself to do that. So I said, well you know, at least you have to admit that it would be a terrible thing 
and that you and your father would never have done that to a family member. And he said, oh, no, that's not true. Wow. I I mean, I'm laughing, but I could cry. Yes, yeah. He said, when um, my father's father died, he mourned him, but his sister mourned him for too long. And (laughs) my father said, this has gone on far enough, and he gave her a lobotomy. He gave his own sister a lobotomy. And when I heard this, I I just could not control myself. No. I wanted to hit him. I wanted to, to kill him. I wanted to, I said, this conversation is finished. I don't yes. ever want to talk to you again. That's the most barbaric thing I've ever heard. He kept this cool. He said, no, my father decided the morning had gone on long enough. But the lesson for that, for you and me and for other people is, don't ever decide for another person when they yes. should stop mourning. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's I mean, a- we have no right to even suggest to them it's gone on long enough. You yeah. support them. You might want to hint that maybe they should think about visiting a shelter <laughs> or doing something to memorialize the animal that died. I did not give that enough attention in my own life. And when I was writing this this book, my editor gently suggested that I should have a chapter on, on memorializing. And I said, well, I've never done it. She said, well, ask your friends what they do. And sure enough, I went on Facebook and put in a a little notice that I was writing this book. And what did people do to, as a ritual for the dog or cat or bird or any animal that they lost and I was inundated with very good ideas. You know, they would plant a tree in the forest. They would um, keep the ashes. They would hold a party. They would put a tattoo. They would write poems. I mean, people took it very seriously. Oh, yes. Yeah. Nobody said, oh, nothing. Just get over it. Nobody said no. no. I'm very glad to state. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's interesting there because when we have a, a human, a, you know, a funeral for a human, we gather together. And I think we yeah. tend to keep our grief for our pets i mean we there are i have heard of people having a a funeral and and, you know and and or a not a party but you know gathering and i shouldn't have said party you're right well it's it's a it's a celebration of them in a way isn't it you know it can be a a party but um it's which i i I tend to keep my grief quite private in that way and so yes i have a you know a statue we we our way is to bury our dogs in the garden we have a, a statue um, but again, I wouldn't sort of ask, I mean, we, we gathered, the four of us gathered, but I wouldn't ask anybody else outside to mm. sort of come and stand. We, and I can't think that's why it's important to share it and to talk yeah, about it. No, I think that's a mistake. I think anybody who wants to be part of it, who knew your animal and loved yes. your animal should be allowed to come and, and celebrate. Oh, I wouldn't stop them, but I wouldn't sort of send out invitations, you know, sort of say. Yeah. Well, I think that may be because up until fairly recently, people would have mocked you. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's I it. Tell you, I tell you this, Jeff, they wouldn't have mocked me for long because I'd have opened my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> yeah. And then, I think that's an important thing, actually, because saying that, when, when I have been hit by grief um, for, for an animal, I have, and, and you mentioned this in the book, I, I did have a feeling of, gosh, do I have the right to be this 
upset. And, and I didn't understand that because I thought, but I love this animal. I would have defended this animal to the death. You know, I, why am I having this feeling of, do I have the right to feel this? Then I have guilt about the feeling of, of the guilt. Um, but it is a strong message from society that animal lives are not worth a human life. And she, you know, it's, so I think it's important to say that for other people, if anybody's feeling that, that tsunami of grief, you're entitled to it, aren't you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Don't let anybody tell you enough already. Don't let anybody make fun of you and be like you, Julie, just open your mouth. if they. <laughs> I mean, there was an article not long ago in a British, where was it? In a very good British, I think the time. Anyway, it's a wonderful article by a well-known scientist who said, I'm, I, I have to admit that when my cat died, I grieve more deeply than when my father died. Now, I wish that we, he had told more because I, what kind of a father did he have? <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> but, but he's entitled to do that. He's entitled to, to grieve very deeply over a cat. And by the way, you know, I've made a little bit of fun of cats in this. Uh, but on the other hand, I need to say something that I think um, they have over dogs. Hmm. And that is I have read, and I know it's true because I actually contacted the person who told the, the anecdote, an elderly man was living in an apartment by himself with an old cat. And that was his closest companion. And he was deeply depressed. And it was in Hong Kong. And he was living on the top floor of a, one of those big buildings. And he opened the window one day. He stepped to the edge and he threw himself out. He committed suicide. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And his cat went to the ledge, saw what was happening, and threw herself out the window. Oh, my goodness. So she was attempting suicide. Now, being a cat, she did not die. He died. Mm. She broke her legs. And that's how the story came out, because she was taken to a vet. And the vet discovered that this is what had happened. And my sister had the same vet. And my sister heard the story from the vet. So I know it's a true story. Yeah. And that's quite astonishing. I've not yes. heard that about a dog. I believe a dog would be capable of it. Yes. I know that Benji was not a great swimmer. He should have been, but he wasn't. Yeah. But we lived on a beach and I would go swimming every day. And Benji would follow me along the shore and moan. And I know he thought I was in trouble. But he could not once or, well, more than once or twice, every once in a while, he would gather up his courage, he would throw himself into the water, and he'd swim out to me, trying to save me, assuming I was drowning. (laughs) But the minute he saw I was okay, he would turn around as fast as he could get back to shore. Oh, bless. But I don't believe, now maybe some of your listeners will know a story. I don't know a story of a dog killed himself over grief for a human. But I believe it's possible. Yeah. yeah. Well, I can imagine anybody... a dog jumping into the water and, and just drowning himself if his person drowned. Yes. Yeah. Well, but I'm not sure that would be dog. deliberate. I mean, they're not great swimmers generally. Yeah. So maybe, you know, they go in to, to save the person and then can't get back. Yeah. But So if any of your listeners know of that, I mean, it's an interesting Yes. Whether a dog can commit suicide 
over the death of their human. Yeah. And they do take our death very seriously. Oh, yes. Yes, they do. Don't and they? when somebody dies in the family, a dog will often refuse to eat. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, they, they definitely do. Definitely. Um, one, uh, it, it's such a, it's, it's a great book and it's such a big subject. We could sit here all day and still not, not cover it. But, um, so one, one last question before we, we sort of um, move towards the end. Um, you don't, and I was really intrigued by this, but you don't believe in an afterlife, do you? I do not, no. No. I wish I did because yeah. then I would think I can meet Benji and many other animals that I've loved. <laughs> Yeah. It would be very comforting to me. Uh, I don't. And in fact, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. Hmm. It, um, I was so upset with Benji getting old and I knew that his end was coming. Yes. So I wanted to prepare myself and I wanted to understand the death of dogs, the death of all animals in, in that with whom we have close relationships. And I looked for some books and I could not find anything. The only things I found, the only books I found were religious books, which said we should be comforted by the fact that they will cross the Rainbow Bridge and we will meet them in an afterlife. Shirley MacLaine writes Mm. that. And I thought, well, that'd be great, but I don't believe it. (laughs) And therefore, I want to read something that, that takes a more secular point of view, but nevertheless acknowledges the spirituality in animals and in our relationship with them. Yeah. And I realized, and I mentioned that to some editor and she said, well, you know what? You better write it because there's nothing out there like that. So I said, okay, I will. <laughs> and that's how I did it. And also I'm now approaching 80. So I'm very aware of death. And I thought this writing about the death of dogs and cats and birds and other animals will allow me to consider my own death Mm. and to think about death more deeply than Mm. I have done. I mean, I have avoided it. I've avoided it with animals. I've avoided it with myself. I've avoided it with my mother and my father as they were getting very old. So it's not an easy topic. No, no, it's death. Mm. You know, whether it's an animal, our own or somebody we love, it's, you know, it's kind of like, I mean, they say about dogs, their only fault is that they don't live long enough. Yeah. Well, we don't live long enough either. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm married. To, my wife is 25 years younger than me. And I realize that she's going to have an entire life after I'm gone without me. Yeah. And, it, I, you know, I can't wrap my mind around that. I want to be there. I don't want to die in the next five, 10 or 15 or even 20 years. I yes. really don't. No, no. <laughs> I want to go on. What you look to me as if you will go on. <laughs> you don't. Well, I'm sure I'll go on for at least 10 years. <laughs> but you know, once you're 80, nobody thinks of it. Oh my God, he was only 80 years old yeah, when he died. You know? <laughs> it's not like 50 or 60. Yes. And yes. even I, when I read the obituaries in the New York Times, which I do every day, uh, increase, more frequently as I grow older, I'm never astonished when I read this person, 81, 82, 83, 84, just died. I think, oh, well, time to go. But, you know, if I see that in the 70s, I get very upset. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I think the older you get, 
the more that pushes back, you know, the more you think, oh, oh that's they right. Have, they have yeah, more next time. year I'm going to be shocked when I see 80 and died. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. I don't like that. <laughs> Just weren't trying. They gave up too soon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's been a great interview. It's, it's a great book. Is there anything that you'd like to say that we haven't had time to say that I haven't, I, I haven't shut up long enough for you to say? <laughs> yeah, I think the only thing that I think we omitted is the fact that people can have these feelings even for wild animals. Hmm. And that always, um, I find that fascinating when it happens, uh, astonishing even, but real. And I, I give a couple of cases in the book. One of them that really got to me was, I guess because it's an anecdote you don't expect. It's not necessarily about death, but there was, um, there was, he died much too young, an American by the name of Charlie Russell, who became one of the great, great um, scholars of bears, even though he never went to school, he never graduated from university, but bear researchers say he knew more about bears than practically anyone ever. And he was living... Russia allowed him to go to a place called the Kamachka Peninsula in eastern Russia, where there's nobody. Hmm. And they said, if you can get there, and if you can build yourself a little house, we'll send you baby bears to rehabilitate. Hmm. So this guy built himself an airplane. He went there. He built a cabin where there was nobody. And the authorities would send him these baby bears, and he would raise them and release them into the wild. And I thought it was such a moving, you can find it on the internet, you just put Charlie Russell and his bears. Yeah. And one day, what really got to me is, you know that bears, mother bears can be very dangerous yes. when they perceive danger to their cubs. And one day he was sitting by himself in the middle of this forest and a female arrived with two cubs. And he thought, you know, I'm finished. Yeah. She perceives me as an enemy. Um, because there were hunters there. The only other people that were there were hunters. And she's going to, there's nothing I can do. I, you know, just pray that, um, that it's a quick death. And she approached him with these two cubs. And she deposited the cubs at his feet. What? She turned around and she left. And he realized at that moment that he was the designated babysitter. <laughs> she And the way he explained it, and it's obviously true, she had observed him. Without his knowing it, she had seen how he had taken these baby cubs wow. and taken care of them. Yes. And she thought, I can trust this human. I need to go hunting. I'll leave my cubs with him for a few hours. And I just found that so moving. Yes. So, and unfortunately, he realized that the hunters were taking advantage of the fact that bears trusted him. Yeah. So they were not afraid of humans, and they would approach these hunters, and the hunters would kill them. So he, he felt such deep mourning. Yeah. And such deep guilt, even though his his intentions were the best, that he picked up and left. And wow. he went back to, uh, he lived in, I think, near Seattle, Washington, somewhere, or Alaska, somewhere where there were bears. Mm. But it was terrible for him to have to leave these bears and realize that 
somehow because of his kindness, mm -hmm. these hunters were taking advantage of it. Oh. So I think there's so many situations, even in the wild, where we form these intense attachments to animals. Yes. Uh, and, and, and mourn their passing. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we're entitled to it. That's the message of the book. Don't let yes. anyone tell you that you have to stop mourning. You take as much time as you want. Yes, absolutely. And you agree with me, Julie. And I, do. I think that's wonderful. We're on the same page here. Yep. I would even say, if someone's giving you a hard time about grieving your dog, you put them in touch with me and I'll, I'll put them straight. <laughs> Great. I like it. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been wonderful talking to I, you. And you. Thank you very much. It was well worth because for me, it was getting up early. <laughs> so thank you very much. <laughs> I get up at five o'clock, so I can't have sympathy with you. Oh, wow. I so you're up late you. then. I am. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you very much. You too. You too. My, my greetings to your husband. <laughs> I will <laughs> Keep going. He's going in the right direction. <laughs> Isn't he fantastic? I do love it when scientists acknowledge animal emotion. Also, I'm now reading his book he mentioned, The Pig Who Sang to the Moon, and it's wonderful, but I can see why meat eaters wouldn't like it. Huge thanks to Geoffrey Masson for that wonderful interview. We have a link on the Dogcast Radio site to jeffreymasson.com and to his Facebook page. The book we were discussing in that interview is Lost Companions, Reflections on the Death of Pets. If you're mourning a beloved pet right now, there is help available. Do get in touch. You're not on your own. During the early months when they're growing, puppies may sleep as much as 18 to 20 hours a day. You're listening to Dogcast Radio on www.dogcastradio.com. And now it's time for the Dogcast Radio News. We featured stories before about how dogs are good for women, and women consider dogs their best companions, but apparently dogs have done just as well out of that close relationship. Washington State University researchers have been investigating how the bond between dogs and women have helped canines take their place as valued family members. The team studied representations of dogs and humans in written history across a variety of cultures, pointing out that for most of human history, societies have been very different from how we live currently. Looking at more traditional societies highlighted the fact that it was women's involvement with dogs which caused a rise in pet personhood, with dogs being given a name, allowed to sleep on furniture, or being ceremoniously mourned at passing. The roles the dogs took on also had a bearing on their status, with hunting dogs being valued more by their owner than herding dogs. Dog keeping was also more popular among cultures in cooler climates. However, dogs thrived wherever humans thrived, emphasising how mutually beneficial the human-dog bond is. It's very clear right now how much we prize our dogs, and sadly, as a result, they have never been at such risk of being stolen. As breeders struggle to meet the demand for dogs, this month dog owners in the UK have been targeted numerous times by criminals to the extent that people are now being warned not to walk their dogs alone in isolated locations. In one instant, two men with a fake RSPCA badge on their van approached a woman jogging with her collie cross in Dorset, England. The men claimed that the dog matched the description of a stolen dog and they needed to take her away for tests. Luckily, the woman managed to run away with her dog. 
In West Sussex, England, a woman was walking her golden retriever puppy when a van with two men in pulled up beside her and the passenger got out. The quick-thinking woman pulled out her phone and took their photograph and the two men fled. Horrifically, thieves posing as RSPCA officials have been blowing dog whistles to make dogs bark or look out of their windows, alerting them as to which houses to target. They even knocked on the front door of one house at 11pm. The RSPCA have issued reminders that their staff wear clearly branded uniforms and carry identification which they will produce if asked. One of the most disgusting incidents we've heard of is a thief trying to steal a guide dog who was being exercised in a park. Thankfully, when the partially sighted owner questioned the thief as to what they were doing, they ran away. Now, it's easy to become alarmed by these incidents, but there are steps we can take to keep dogs safe. As dog owners, we can walk with another person or in groups, as long as local COVID restrictions allow. Walk in daylight and avoid isolated areas. If you share photos of your pet online, check your privacy settings so that you are only sharing photos with friends. If you buy or adopt a dog, make sure you know where the dog has come from. In the UK, all dogs have to be microchipped, so get that chip checked and make sure that your new dog isn't actually someone else's beloved pet. Has the COVID-19 pandemic caused huge changes to your lifestyle? Well, it's changed life for many dogs too, especially guide dogs. Marie Vianeda, a 19-year-old college freshman from Bloomington, Indiana, has gone from walking 10 miles every day with her 5-year-old Bernese Mountain Dog Black Lab mix, Milo, to being in her apartment most of the time. You can catch up with Marie and Milo on their Everything Guide Dog Facebook page, and it's well worth a visit for ideas as to how to keep your own dog occupied during lockdown. Marie creates obstacle courses for Milo and plays impulse control games with him. If you have found a great way to amuse and entertain your dog without leaving the house, we'd love to hear from you. Our mischief loves it when we hide treats in cardboard boxes, which she has to bite and claw apart to get to the tasty treats. Nice and low cost, and it makes it easier to fit the cardboard boxes into the recycling bag. That's all we've got time for, except to say if you spot an uplifting dog news story, do let us know about it and we'll include it in the next Dogcast Radio News. See you next time! Scientists in California observed that dogs who were indifferent when their owners merely ignored them reacted negatively when the owner showered attention on a stuffed dog, indicating they were feeling jealousy. Isn't it miserable if your dog is afraid of the vet? Well, the good news is that there is help available, and the answer is not just to force the dog to get on with it. Tony Shelbourne has written, Help, my dog is scared of the vet, and she has the answers you need. I'm talking today to Tony Shelbourne. Hi, Tony. Hiya. Hiya. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Lovely to be back. Good. Lovely to have you back, yes. It, it seemed a long time away when we, put this, when we booked this in the diary, didn't it? Yes. Just a little bit, yeah, definitely. It, well, it's everything's so busy at the moment, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yes. Surprisingly, I don't know how it's managing to be like that, but yes, it, it is busy. <laughs> I will cope with normal life again. I don't know, but there you okay. go. <laughs> so we're going to talk today about um, you know your new book, Help My Dog Is Afraid of the Vet. Now, is this an important subject? How how important is it if your dog's afraid of the vet? It's really, really important. You know, we spend so much time teaching a sit and doing all these fun trick training stuff. 
But when it comes to the vets, I think sometimes we just hope for the best and we kind of just go, oh, just get it done. Yes. Emotionally for the dogs and, you know, for their kind of comfort levels and distress levels, it's it's really important. It can be just as fun to train husbandry stuff at home and prepare them for those really scary procedures and things that happen at the vets as it is to train tricks but it's got that really good outcome of it's going to be easier for your dog it's going to be easier for you it's going to be so much safer and easier for the veterinary staff everything takes less time to do because your dog is sort of safely familiar with what's going to happen so therefore everybody benefits from it yeah but emotionally stuff at the vets can be so hard for dogs and it's never going to be nice you know, we're never going to, unless you have what's, you know, that rare creature of a bomb-proof dog who doesn't care what happens to them and gets over everything scary, you know, our dogs are always only ever going to tolerate what we do. So a lot of the book talks about resilience and teaching, you know, trying to program resilience into your dogs so that, yes, they, you know, scary stuff can happen, but you can get over it quickly and not hold on to that memory of it as well. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I can identify with fear of the vet because I am terrified of the dentist and he's he's a very nice chap you know I would have a cup of coffee with him absolutely happily but you know I, I am terrified and it takes me all my time to go in and he knows I'm terrified you know and I've got the benefit of, of language and I can say to him look look hang on hang on I'm terrified talk to me about things tell me what's going to happen let me have some kind of feeling of control here you know and and I guess that's you know sort of what we need to try and give to our dogs in a way. But I know why I'm terrified of the dentist because I've had bad experiences and, you know, I worry about that and that kind of thing. But why? Why might our dog be be frightened of the vet? Well, for those exact same reasons as, we're, as you're frightened of the dentist. You know, it could be a really bad experience. It could be they've got un- ongoing treatment that's a bit painful and a bit, you know, not very nice. It could be that they've got pain. So, of course, going to the vet's, you know, we can't say, oh, it's going to hurt for a bit, but actually it'll be fine afterwards. All they know is that it's painful. The smells, the, the you know, all of those messages coming from other dogs in the in the waiting room that mm. are frightened. Uh, you know, it's that association of the first time they went to this place, they had some vaccination shoved, you know, painfully in their, in their scruff or, you know, they've been handled roughly as the puppy and they haven't yet bonded with us. I mean, there are so many reasons why dogs become frightened of the vets yeah and the problem is because we don't set them up for success and because the vets are you know they have to do this stuff and they have to kind of take that health welfare over the emotional welfare of the dog sometimes they have to get it done so you know they and okay we know I don't want to vet bash but you know vets don't necessarily have a lot of training as say us dog trainers and behaviors do in handling dogs and so there's time limit there's the fact that they have to get this done for the welfare of the dog you know maybe not having as many skills as us all these things you know put together just ends up with a disaster really yeah Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to put that in context, yes, I absolutely agree with you. I I don't want to vet bash at all. But, you know, I have said to people in the past, okay, because they've said, oh, the vet says X, Y, Z about behaviour. It was to do with the crate. And I kind of said, well, if you're going to take behaviour advice from the vet, are you going to let the behaviourist operate on the dog? Because 
you know, you're both wonderful, you know, vets and behaviors, wonderful people, but we've got to sort out in our, yeah, what do we ask them for? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're specializing in what we know. Yes, yeah. Definitely. And as I say, wonderful people that can make, make your life with your dog so much happier, but you've got to know who you're asking for what. Now, saying that, it is really, really important to find the right vet isn't it because I mean that that relationship you've got to trust them you've got to be able to take their advice and I think you've got to have a vet that listens as well as gives the advice you know and that's important so that but that is vital isn't it absolutely there's so much we can look for and I don't know about you but like with your for example going back to your dentist scenario if you didn't like your dentist and it was painful you wouldn't go again no no I had a bad experience a few years ago with a dentist and Although I knew it again, it wasn't the dentist's fault. I actually had to change dentists because I knew that if I went back to that same one, I would it would be really panicked. So, you know, there's when we're looking for a vet, I think we have to like them. We have to have a vet that is professional enough to listen to us and to take our concerns on board. So many of my clients come back and go, oh, my vet kind of poo-pooed what you said or, you know, what I said or the symptoms of it. You know, and I'm like... Well, hang on you know you can change vets if you're yes. not getting the right the right vibe from them if you haven't got that relationship with them so I think they need to be flexible I think they really need to ha- like if you know something's wrong with your dog you want someone who's going to be as active as you as pursuing that and finding what that issue is so that professionalism you know and and it, you often have that old adage, don't you, of, oh, that people are really good with dogs, but they're not so good with people. And it's really hard to find someone who's good with both. Yes. Yeah. You know, they, and those ones that you do find are like gold dust and you do not want to lose them. I just like, oh, you know, sometimes I'm like, oh, I've got to train another vet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and let yes. them know how much I know and, you know, yeah. all those things. But, you know, I've found some wonderful vets over my lifetime of having dogs. And, you know, they're, they are out there. But you have the right to shop around. If you're not happy, then then find another practice, ask for another vet, or there's there's a specific vet that you really get on with and your dog really likes. Don't be frightened to kind of just go, unless it's not, you know, as long as it's not an emergency, it's a routine thing. Make sure you're looking for those people. Yeah, yeah. Also, I think educate yourself about why the vet might be doing something. Because I can remember when I when we moved house and I took Buddy to a new vet. The vet didn't talk to him straight away. And I'd been used to sort of vets, you know, Buddy was so, so friendly and he'd be jumping at the vet and the vet would, would often just, where we'd be, would would be talking to him. So this new vet didn't speak to Buddy straight away and had a conversation with me. And I was a bit like, you don't like my dog. I'm not sure I like you. And then actually I was talking to another vet who said, well, you know, it's it's it can be good practice to let the dog have space yeah. to settle in. I didn't know that. And as the years went by, this vet was wonderful but yeah. initially yeah and I could so easily have gone oh I'm going somewhere else and for the wrong reasons yeah yeah I think know what you're looking for well absolutely and just know and you know if they are willing to answer your questions and willing to track things down with you and you know really work with you so it's not just important to that they have a rapport with your dog it's really important they have a rapport with you as well yeah Definitely, definitely. And also, I think because I, you know, I read things, I hear things. And for example, with Buddy, I'd heard about this gel that could go into joints for um, arthritis. And he had, they'd said to me, he has some arthritis. So I ran away with the idea, he's got arthritis, I've got to 
look up um, treatments and I've got to find out the, you know, and I went back full of beans going, oh, I found this gel. Can we do this? And then I had to sort of listen and be told, well, actually, it's only a touch of arthritis and there are other problems. He had a degenerative spine condition right. and that's the worst problem. So, you know, yes, you, I think you need to vet that you can, will be open to your ideas, but also you, this is why you need An to idea, one, yeah. Yeah, that find one that you trust and that you can rely on and then, then listen to them. Yeah. So that's, you know, it's a, it's a balancing act, isn't it? It definitely is. Yeah. But you just, you know, the thing is that you need to be comfortable with your vet. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Okay. So an, an important point that you touched on there is you'll make life easier for you and for the dog and for the vet. And we don't often see it. We don't often stop and think about it from the vet's point of view because we're so caught up with how I feel, how I think the dog feels. But the vet is an important part of the equation here, isn't it? So what what is the vet going to be looking for from us? What what might the vet, you know, it's easy to see the vet as the the enemy, for want of a better word, because my dog's frightened and they might do this. But yes, yeah. But really, you know, in real life, the vet's going to be wanting to help us as well, aren't they? Yeah, they, yeah, they're they're having a very vital service, keeping our animals healthy. Um, um, that I think that's why it should be down to us to prepare our dogs to be resilient and and happy to be handled. There is so much we can do at home. You know, for all my dogs, you know, they would have you know training in certain procedures. So, for example, if I knew my dog was going for a blood draw, I'd practice holding them in the position that they would have to hold and asking them to hold still, so that actually blood draws took 10 less than 10 seconds not like minutes of them scrabbling around getting very upset and stressed and you know the vet potentially being bitten you know my dogs know that's a familiar thing this happens really quickly after we have a party and we have loads of treats and it's like yeah really exciting what a great dog you're so good and then they're like oh yeah well you can do that again to me that's why because it took like seconds yeah yeah and that I mean that's that again it's it's something for most of us, we wouldn't think of practicing that at home. Um, I have only because very clever people like yourself um, and, you know, have said to me, this is something you can practice at home. And that's so important. And I, I think I, uh, certainly the dogs we have had can tell if it's you're just fussing there in idle, you know, absentmindedly just fussing them and reading a book or looking at your phone or whatever. And then, you know, when you suddenly go, oh, what's what's that in your fur? And, and, you, and you're looking with intent and they've all kind of gone, Hey, what you're doing? They know, so you can actually practice that that examination. I, I don't mean a veterinary examination. I just mean looking at them with intent yeah. at home, can't you? Definitely. And you know what? All our dogs should be comfortable to have their ears lifted and their eyes looked in and their mouth looked at and in between the toes and tails lifted. And you know that's something routinely we should be doing at home from puppies or from the you know when we get our rescue dogs, because that's the start of general handling and being comfortable and safe around the vet is for them just to be used to that when we touch them, nothing bad happens. And even if we do touch them to do something you know, training them to be familiar with that is, is it takes all the stress out of it. So, you know, there's so, I mean, you know, some dogs don't even want to get on a weighing scale because it moves slightly. So we can teach them that walking on something that's slightly wobbly is great, but also weighing scales in surgeries are often like up against walls or shoved in little corners. If you've yeah. got a big dog, it's hard for them to maneuver on. So even just teaching them to go on a platform from different angles and to stand on something that's slightly wobbly 
again, it means that you can take that weight from them very quickly. It doesn't trigger stack them for when they go in to see the vet. You know, there's just so much we can do, you know, to help in all of these things, whether it's, you know, getting them used to, I mean, I would never obviously tell people to take a dog's temperature or shove something down the dog ear to, you know, get them used to having yes. horoscopes down. But you can prepare them by lifting the ear and moving something towards the ear or, you know, holding a wooden spoon in front of your nose and looking them in the eye if it's safe to do so. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Go away and do this and get bitten. But, you know, to, you know, because one day they might have to have, you know, their eyes examined. And if they don't like eye contact and you've never trained them to be comfortable with that, then again, it's going to be really hard for the vets. It's going to put them in danger um, and it's going to take longer and everyone's going to get stressed. So, you know, the book is just full of these plans of how you can get the dogs used to all of these things that might happen at the vets, even down to wearing muzzles. I mean, I think every single dog should be muzzle trained, not because they need a muzzle, but one day they might need that muzzle. Yes. Because, you know, if they're hurt and they're uncharacteristically going to lash up because of pain and then someone also shoves something on their faces, again, it's another trigger and it just makes it even more stressful. But if they're used to wearing a muzzle, it's been fun, they've been fed through it, takes that that one little candle out of all of those little candles that light up or that that make it a bad experience for them yeah oh that's a lovely that's a lovely way of putting it that you know sort of the candles around them and you can just take one away (laughs) it's not quite as dangerous and it's not as distressing yeah definitely it's definitely but I mean you've talked about whether you know when you have a puppy you go to the vet or whether you have a rescue dog do we need to approach those in different ways whether we've got a puppy or a rescue dog? Um, I think what we often do is rush to the vets with both. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, puppies need their vaccinations because we need to get them out and socialise them. But, of course, that for, if you have the the uh, ability to take them to the vets for a couple of fun trips before you go, that's really yes. useful before they have a needle shoved in their, their neck. Um, with rescue dogs, remember, if there's nothing physically wrong with them and the rescue's probably done vaccinations and all that stuff, again, don't rush because you need to build up a bond with that dog and for that dog to trust you before you start putting them in stressful situations. So one of the common mistakes that people make is they rush to go to training classes and they rush to take them to the vets and the dogs just aren't ready for it. So we can, again, start lots of preparations at home, see what they like, where they like to be touched, where they don't, what we can do with them, what we can't, what we need to work on. And, you know, for some dogs, we might not know their history with the vet. So you might turn up at the vets and they might not even walk in the door. So what do you do then? So that again, in the book, there's a whole program of if your dog won't even enter the building, this is where you start. You can start at home with some telling and touch work. You can start in the car park. You don't even have to get out of the car if you don't want to. You could drive in, feed 10 treats and drive out home again and do that multiple times and just have that little process of being every time a little bit further out of the car and a little bit closer to the door. So there's so much you can do for those rescue dogs. But if they you know, do want to go in the surgery, one of the biggest things we can do for our dogs is play. Because if you've played somewhere and had a really good time in an environment and then later something scary happens, they'll get over it quicker. So yeah. play inhibits that fear. So the more we can have fun in those environments, then the better. 
But again, if they won't go in, another thing you can do is get something that smells of the vets. So you can ask the vet nurse, can I have a, a cloth maybe with some of the disinfectant on that's safe for my dog to kind of sniff at a distance or, you know, when it's dry on a cloth, it's going to be safe. You can put that in an air tight container. And then every time you feed them the dinner, you can just open it, let them sniff and feed them the dinner or open it, put it on the floor as they sniff, drop treats around it. So you start to build up that positive association of the vets without having to be at the vets. Yeah, yeah. And it does work. I remember um, interviewing a, a lady who'd had a rescue dog who was terrified of the vet. And she did exactly this. You know, she, she was saying, I think I'd been to the vets, driven to the vets 10 times before we actually set foot inside the door. You know, and all that paid off. And this dog is wonderful now going to the vet. But it is. It's You've got to think it through beforehand, haven't you? It's, it's, you've got to take that time. If, if, if that's what your dog needs, you've got to put the time in, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. And even if your dog is bomb-proof, if they've been and had something scary, you may have to then do some fun trips again to kind of negate that. So yes. I had a client recently who had a, whose dog had a really scary experience with um, the Kanokov vaccine, you know, the one that gets shoved up the yes. And the dog had had to be taken out the back and muzzled and all that stuff. So I was like, okay, so we need to just make sure this dog's happy to go back into that environment and that the next time it isn't scary. So that's exactly what we did. We just went back to going in the car park, having fun trips, eventually going in, having a bit of a play, coming out again. Next time she went, she was fine again. Yeah. And in the meantime, we also then went back to training her to target like a you can get you know either a syringe without a needle or a ballpoint pen with the ink taken out, teaching her to target something and to hold in that position so that when she had the vaccine again, then it wasn't a big stressy. It wasn't like, oh, I remember that last time. Yes. It was like, oh, yeah, I do this and this happens. And yeah, it's not nice. But again, we can just recover afterwards. It's building up that resilience again. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, usually your vet is fairly local to where you live so you get the opportunity don't you I mean where we our vet used to be oh I don't know 30 feet from where I parked to go for a walk so we'd often drop in you know and just say hello yeah and it was a pleasant experience that they could remember and go oh this is okay you know yeah and you know the other thing you can do if your dog is happy to walk into the reception room is choose a time when there's no consoles on and just go and regularly weigh your dog and come out again yes having had a party afterwards instead of later all the stuff you know there's there's tons of things you can do and the vets are really really open to that because of course they want the dogs to be stress-free so they're easier to handle so it's safer for them and they're animal lovers they want the dogs to have a, a good experience too so you know there's there's so, so much you can do I would probably just say you know as a courtesy thing just ring up the receptionists are really good at telling you when it's going to be quiet yeah, you know, when you're going to be able to come in and do this kind of stuff when it's safe as well because obviously puppies you need to make sure you don't put them on the floor if they're not vaccinated and all of those things yeah um, but you know they're, they're going to be really helpful they're going to want you to do that stuff they love it when owners do that stuff yeah yeah I mean to be fair the vet I was talking about was it had a big double fronted window so uh, and in the waiting area so if you walked past and you could say oh no they're a bit busy today yeah we didn't go in but if you could say okay there's nobody around I just pop in and you know we'd, we'd only go in when it was suitable yeah. for them but yeah I mean talk to them talk to the vets and talk to the nurses because they are on your side they're on your dog's side aren't they definitely and that's the other thing if your dog is like for example reactive to other dogs or a bit scared lots of people just don't think about waiting in the car or you know sometimes what I would do is if I'm 
go into the vets. You know, vets often are late because, you know, they're having to deal with animals that don't want to be handled and all that. So I would ring ahead and say, oh, how, how you know, far yeah. back are you? What time do you think I'll get in? So I wouldn't have to wait around for too long, but I'd still wait in the car park. And you can always ask your vet, can I come in via a different back entrance so I don't have to go through the dogs in the reception? Can I come out that way? Can I just make sure that, again, we're taking out those triggers? Yeah. Um, and lots of people, I think, don't feel like they can ask that stuff, but they're, they're more than willing to do that. And often they will have somewhere else they can sneak you in and you won't have to go through that stress of walking through other dogs or, you know, whatever it is they're, they're fearful of. But, yeah, lots of people don't even think about just waiting in the car. Yes. Yeah. Um, but again, it's something that doesn't occur to you. You just get so stressed. And, you, you know, when you're in that situation, you go, oh, no, the dog doesn't like it. And I don't like it. And you go into that kind of... Yeah. I just just a different thing when you're dealing with the problem from when you're advising someone else because you stand back and go well hang on can we do this can we do that but in the situation you kind of just go ah this is horrible you know so you're stressed so therefore your dog's going to pick up on that as well so yeah if everyone everybody knows the plan um and everyone kind of has set them everybody up for success not only just your dog but you and your you know and the, the vet staff it's much better like for example my last dog didn't like the sound of the clippers so if he and he did quite often have to have blood draws from his yeah. neck so some vets were willing because he was very short-coated to do it without shaving but if I thought mm, I'm not sure whether this vet will do it I would pre-clip it myself um, yeah. or you can go in the day before and get them to shave it and then go back, you know, a couple of days later. So you're, again, you're just making sure the dog's set up for success and it's not too scary all at once, because of course, by the time you've shaved it and had that noise, then trying to get someone near them again with a needle, sometimes dogs are just going to flip on that. Yeah. So again, it's, it's, it's about planning and kind of figuring out what your dog likes, what they don't and just organizing it. So everyone's successful. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I mean, you've got I know you've got a section in the book called extra support and it, it, there is that available. But talk to them and let them know, you know, that you you will work with them. You will accept help. You know, you'll do whatever you will put the time is you'll put the time in that the dog needs. As you say, vets love that, don't they? And nurses love that when you they know, OK, you're, you're going to actually be committed here and, 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 and help rather than, you know, into what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. And and yes, it does take time. But you know, if we for people who are training sit and they just train sit forever, and I'm not saying anything about about sits, it's very relevant yep. sometimes. <laughs> but you know, why don't we train other stuff that is like I say, it can be fun at home, but also just make everybody's life so much easier yeah. and stress-free. I mean, you know, my yeah, you know, my dogs love doing husbandry training. I think it's great fun. And then when they go to the vets and the same thing happens, they go, "Oh yeah, I know what I'm doing." You know, they're like, "Oh yeah, that's fine. We'll do that." You know, and then it's you know, and you can then do a big party afterwards and go, "You know, what? you know, I don't wait to get outside to have a party with my dogs. I'm just like, I'll stuff them with food the minute anything happens. You know, everything's finished." pull out a toy if they prefer a toy we'll go and do something really fun afterwards or you know come home and have the biggest bone ever you know we just do that recovery brief debrief what I call the debrief thing yeah mm. I, I mean and it does it does work doesn't it because I know with um with the dog we've got now mischief you know she didn't she really didn't like having her nails clipped Right. And particularly with lockdown, you know, we've been we've been doing them, and we really put a lot of work in, and even um, trimming. You know, we're getting the scissors and just trimming, and 
we just got to the point where we'd get the scissors out and she'd just run to us because she knew, oh, it's treat time. Okay. And initially it was just show you the scissors, give you a treat, put the scissors away, all the clippers away. And just very, very slowly so that she never got to the point where she went, because at at times she would just go, I I, I just can't even have a treat. I'm so stressed. You know, I can't do it. And so we just stepped it all back and went back to where she could cope with and then gradually worked up. And And I'll tell you a story about nail clipping that's really interesting. So yeah, my my dog B that um, sadly is no longer with me. She came to me as a really terrified um, rescue who mm. tried to dry her feet. She would just fall to the ground and pee herself with fright. Oh. So, so frightened. Um, so, and her nails were quite long. And I was, I did all that work of like helping her get used to her feet handles and using the T-touch work and introducing the clippers slowly. And I was doing really well. I went to the vet to do something else. And the vets were like, oh, her nails are really long. I need to clip them. I was like, well, no, not really, because... It's not life-threatening, and I'm training her for life rather than just getting it done. And in the end, I was like, look, start then. But if I say stop, I want you to stop straight away because she's the kind of dog who looked like she was really compliant but actually would just go into learned helplessness. And and I could tell that those minute signs of her not coping. So the vet did one foot. It was the the front, front right and I said to the vet, can you stop now? And she was like really surprised. I was like, no, she's not coping. I want to be able to do this for life. I'm going to continue training at home. So after a few more months, I went from taking three weeks to clip all her nails to like three minutes. But the only foot she ever struggled with for the rest of her life was her front right. Wow. Yep. That's incredible. Yep. Wow. Because I'd, I'd, I'd gone against my instincts and I'd let the vet do that one. Yeah. Yeah. But then, you know, if even you, you know, find yourself in that situation with the vet and go, well, yeah, OK. You know, as with all your your knowledge and experience, you know, us as a pet owner, you go in and you, it is daunting, isn't it? Sometimes when they say something that goes against your yeah. instinct. And again, that's why that partnership with the vet is so important. Yeah, definitely, definitely is. And, you know, it's it's really interesting because people often say to me, Oh well, oh, I can't clip my nail, my dog's nails, or do this or do that. And but oh, they let the vet do anything, and I'm like, are they actually letting the vet, or are they yeah. just shutting down? So for me, that's a big red flag that says actually they're not comfortable at all, but they've just like they've just gone. Okay, it's got to be done. So I'm gonna, I'm just gonna sit here and pretend nothing's happening. But it doesn't mean they're happy about no. it. No, no. And it takes a long time to, well, it, t- it takes a while to learn that. I mean, we had a dog that would hold absolutely still. He, he wasn't very good with other dogs and he'd hold absolutely still. And I would think initially, oh, bless him. He's, he's being good. He's holding still. And it, then it took me, you know, <laughs> somebody said to me, actually, he's gone into a freeze mm-hmm. and he's not. Yeah. And I was like, oh, right. Okay. And again, it's you gradually learn this, you pick the things up and you start to read your dog mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, you realize, ah, right. Okay. This wasn't what I assumed. And, and that's, important as well isn't it to look at the dog and read what they're trying to tell you yeah and learning body language and calming signals and those micro expressions and things like like looking at the breath rate change of your dog is your dog holding their breath or is they have they started to pant does their eye look worried or do you see whites of the eye or their eyes are darting are they yawning when they're not tired are they looking away are they slow eye blinking licking those all of those things we want to notice those little tiny whispers of communication because that's going to tell us when they're starting to get anxious about stuff and, and we should support them at that level not wait them to get into fight flight freeze fall around flock you know faint whatever you know whatever fear response they go into 
Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, now, if if we've done our best with this and, and you know, we, we, we've tried all this and, and things still aren't really going that well, or perhaps alongside these these measures, there's medications that can help, isn't, aren't there? Well, there's yeah, there's lots of things you can try. There's there's like behavioral drugs or there's lots of, you know, alternative stuff like essential oils and, you know, all those kind of products that you can get as well. So although drugs, behavioural drugs wouldn't be my first go to, I mean, there are a few that you could use just for that trip that are very short term and easy to do, like Celio gel sort of jumps to mind. That's something that you can apply before you go. You know, sometimes if you know your dog's going in for a particular procedure like bloods or x-rays, sometimes the vets will let will give you something to sedate them before you get there or they might come and sedate them in the car so they can fall asleep in the car and then carry them in you know so there is there is alternatives if the dogs are really struggling and but the thing is with drugs is that the statistics and the research show us that if people use behavioral drugs they quite often fail because they then don't feel like or they don't get around to doing the behavioral training right yeah you have to do both for them to work you can't just give a pill and your dog's anxiety just go away yeah there's no magic wand no no, all hard work (laughs) yes yeah but I mean the thing is with a lot of dog training if you put the thought in ahead of time and you 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 know you really help yourself think it through and think right I'm going to take the time and I'm going to do take you know watch the dog and I'm going to listen and do all the right things it's not it's not that hard is it it just takes that takes some time it does take time. And, and like I said, sometimes things happen that we can't prevent. So, for example, another client of mine whose dog had a ridge, she has allergies and she'd had a really bad flare up of her ears and she had to have treatment. And, and like three or four people pinned her down to kind of put this stuff in her ears. So, of course, then she's terrified of anyone going anywhere near her ears. So then we've got a well, we need to recover from this. So we took like months and months and months getting her used to being touched on the shoulder and touched near the ear. And then we once she was happy for us to handle the ears, we then did everything from the beginning with a bottle of gel that she had to regularly have in. And then we did it with the with the cap off so she could smell it as well. You know, and now what happens is, well, in, before they would have to heavily sedate her every time you had to put something in her ears. Now they can just about do it without anything. Plus, the vet can also look down the ears without, um, you know, too much trouble again. But, you know, it took quite a few months to, to do that. And, you know, we used some T-touch methods and we used, you know, that positive association. And, oh, yes, look, here's a, here's a bottle, but let's feed you something nice and all of those lovely association techniques. Um, it took time, but we got there. Yes. Yeah. But while you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, to, to relate it again to to my dentist fear, um, you know, if I went to the dentist and he and the dental nurse and the receptionist piled onto me and held me down and you know did the did the treatment, you know, yes, it would be done and I'd get out. I wouldn't want to go back. And when I did go back, I would be on the lookout. I'd be ready. You know, it would take a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, and we, you know, we we often forget that our dogs are probably even more emotional than we are. You know, yes. they're sentient beings who have all those same thoughts and feelings in us. You know, we're proving now more and more every day that they have just as wide a range of emotions as we do. What you know, but we still sometimes think of them as mechanical machines that we can just do what we want, and we don't give them choice because we can yes. pin them down and we can get it done. We don't give them that choice of going 
hello, can I just, can you just slow down a bit, please? So that's where things like start button behaviours are really good, where we can teach the dogs to say, I'm ready. So, for example, you know, teaching a dog to give a paw, once to give a paw, is that okay now for me to clip? But if you take your paw away, I'm going to stop. Give them that choice to be able to do stuff. And again, you're going to go to another layer of training where they're comfortable and it's safer and quicker for you. Yes. Yeah. Now, for a lot of people, that would, I don't know about a lot of people, for some people, that would feel perhaps like a, like giving in to the dog. You know, if I'm, do you know what I mean though? Uh, you, yes, I understand exactly what you're saying. And I, I put that into practice, but, I, and I'm thinking of specific people who I won't say any names here, but you know, for some people, if the dog's put then choosing to put the paw there or take it away, yeah. it's going to feel like a, like I've let the dog win. And that's not yeah. the truth at all, is it? No, we are going back to training methods that were like 1800s gun dog stuff of you must do it and you must do it now and you don't have a choice because, you know, I am the boss of you and all that stuff. And again, you know, they didn't know those days about emotions and all that stuff that we know now. They didn't know about learning theory, all of the the modern day stuff that we can go no, actually, you have just as much of a right to have a choice of what we do to you than than, than I do. Yeah. And it actually what people forget is they're destroying their dog's trust in you as well when you force things to be done. Yeah. So you're going to damage your own relationship. There's nothing, you know, the dog is dogs are not dominant. There's like, you know, I, got, I can't remember how many millions of dogs there are in this world, but something like 525 million dogs in this in this world. They're not all trying to be leaders. <laughs> no, no. We're not all trying to be bosses of major companies, are we? Some of us love being followers, you know? Yes, yeah. You know, it's very rare that you'll get a dog who's being dominant. You know, we, we can really need to throw that out the window. And yeah. they know we're humans. And yes, they'll have a pecking order within their, you know, they have a hierarchy within their social groups. That's totally different. And we know that it's not about who's the strongest and who's the the most violent and all that stuff it's normally older dogs showing younger dogs how to how to live and they're coaching them in life skills which is what we do with our children yes yeah absolutely they're exactly the same yeah yeah that has it's been so misunderstood isn't it the the you even think twice about saying the alpha you know the, the, I'm thinking of wolves the alpha role it's not sort of being a great big man and and, and or even woman whatever <laughs> and, and going around and bossing everybody around telling them what to do it's it's just it's checking in you're okay you, you've got you've got what you need what do you it's you know it's much more a nurturing role isn't it that alpha you know and that's in, in wolves but that the damage that still does yeah. you know you've got to be the boss of your dog uh, and you're just going oh my goodness how many miserable dogs are going to have to live through this myth yeah well I've been banging on about it for well how long has my truth about walls and dogs book out now he's out of print now it's so old <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh well we'll, we'll keep we'll keep um you know saying the <laughs> telling the truth and, and telling it to people but you know it. and it is spreading but you you still you hear it the thing is you hear it from people involved in the dog industry yeah and that is when you think oh come on it's it's one thing when it's a, when it's a dog owner who just hasn't you know taken that on yet but when it's a professional you just think oh you're doing even more damage now this is but anyway we're, we're doing our bit we're talking that's about, a about whole it. another podcast isn't it I know, isn't it? we can be here all day i won't get into that one um is there anything else that we haven't touched on yet about being afraid of the vet? 
I think it's just a case of everything we've said, really. It's 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 not hard to do. You know, there are really easy steps. I'm literally in the book. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a, a great one for like detail. So having to sit down and write training plans for every single thing was the most boring thing oh. I've had to do in my life. <laughs> and then, and then Karen Bush, who runs uh, Skinny Dog Books with me, who does all the editing, would come back and go, mm, "Can you?" And I'd be like, "Oh, no, I've got to go into more detail." Um, <laughs> but they are really detailed now, so anyone can follow them. Um, and and you can have fun with your dog. You know, it, you can change that scary, horrible experience. And most people will kind of go, like they do with fireworks, oh, no, I've tried that and nothing works and my dog's always going to be frightened. But there is so much you can yeah. do. And the skinny dog books, you know, Help My Dog Scared of the Vet has got every single thing I know in about how to help your dog in that situation and how to recover from situations and all of those things. So it is a one-stop shop for everything you need to know. Yeah. Excellent. And there's nothing in there that is, um, you know, rocket science. And there's nothing in there that is not achievable for anybody, um, whether that's pet owner or, you know, you know, vets reading it to be able to get more information on handling, all that stuff. Anyone can get information from it that would be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's if it's got everything in it that you know about helping them get to the vet it's not it's not going to be that skinny it's going to have a lot of stuff in it <laughs> yeah actually it was a lot thicker than most of the oh, other wow. that we, that we yeah <laughs> not so skinny you're right that one is uh, yeah <laughs> so it's gonna it's gonna help people and, and it's gonna and it's gonna have practical advice isn't it practical applications in there that you can yeah. actually use you know yeah. so yeah. much practical stuff that's pretty much you know most of the book is practical training uh, plans it's uh explaining how to do the tellington touch work which is so useful you know how to put a body wrap on how to you know like I say that debrief afterwards what to do to help your dog be resilient and get over that problem so yeah absolutely everything you need to know yeah brilliant so now we need to know where can people find it online so it's on it's in amazon all, all around the world so any amazon you go to there'll be links to it um, easiest thing to do if you just put my name in Tony Shelbourne then you'll mm-hmm. find all of the books you know all the skinny dog books because we've got a whole range of them now and we're adding to them all the time um, so it's in paperback it's also in Kindle um, so it's you know in lots of different formats that people can can um, can use in this modern day really so yeah pretty easy yeah if you're in the UK and you want a signed copy you can always contact us as well direct and we'll happily post one to you with it signed excellent um and uh, again you can find me through my website tonyshelbourne.co.uk or go to skinnydogbooks.jimdo.com <laughs> well done <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll put all the links on the website um, so people can find you thank you ever so much for for all these books and, and all your hard work and and everything you do for dogs and you're a great advocate for dogs and sort of helping them live their best life which is so important thank you Tony is a force for good in the dog world and she is brilliant at sharing her knowledge in an accessible way. We have the links on dogcastradio.com to Tony's website and Skinny Dogs and Help My Dog Is Scared of the Vet on Amazon. As we come to the end of another podcast, I just want to say that you can find all our podcasts and much more at dogcastradio.com. Do remember to check out my new show, In the Doghouse on UK Health Radio. You can listen anywhere in the world and there's a listen again option so you can listen anytime. 
To make it easy, I'll pop the link on the Dogcast Radio site so you can click straight through. Until next time, look after yourselves and your dogs. Thanks for listening to Dogcast Radio, available from www.dogcastradio.com. That's D-O-G-C-A-S-T radio.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and wherever you are in the world, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so in a variety of ways. You can contact us on Skype with the ident Dogcast Radio. That's all one word, Dogcast Radio. By email, you can contact me on Julie at dogcastradio.com When contacting us by email, if you have the facilities, please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file. That way we can include them directly in our programme. We can accept most formats, for example, WAV, MP3. All these methods of contacting us can be found on our website, which is www.dogcastradio.com And as ever, the final word goes to Jenny. Why do dogs always race to the door when the doorbell rings? It's hardly ever for them. Joke credit, Harry Hill.